Hey everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 30th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. Now, before we dive into this week's show, I want to thank those of you who continued to make Talk Nerdy possible throughout all of the um, upside downness that's happening in the world right now. Um, but I will say the same thing that I said last week, which was that, you know, right now it's true. Um, this is pretty much my only source of income. And although I just like uh, deeply, deeply appreciate the support from those of you who are buying cool merch, you know, I'm still shipping all of that out. Or those of you who have gone to patreon.com slash talk nerdy and pledged your support or continue to do so. I also very much recognize and very much appreciate that we're all in the same boat right now. And many of you are struggling really heavily financially. And um, because of that, I not only don't want to encourage anybody to support right now who doesn't, but also if you're in a position where canceling your, your Patreon or canceling the ongoing the support that you've had is the best financial decision for you right now, I really do encourage you to do that. Um, not only are there no hard feelings, but like, oh my gosh, I only have love for you. And I want everybody to be in a position where they can, you know, get through these next several weeks, maybe even a couple of months. You know, none of us really know how long this is going to last. And we're, we're all in this together across the entire globe. So um, I'm thinking about you guys always. I'm so glad that I get to continue doing the show for you guys. Um, but I do think that it's fair that I, as, um, as I always say, I will, that I go ahead and give a shout out to those of you who have been um, the top supporters this week. And they include, let's see, Michael Goucher, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Mary Neva, uh, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, David J. E. Smith, Brian Holden, and Daniel Lang. Thank you guys all so much from the bottom of my heart. Um, and to those of you who... Um, yeah, who are struggling out there. I'm thinking of you all the time. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully the show offers just like a little bit of a break from all the coronavirus news. I've intentionally not been interviewing epidemiologists or immunologists or physicians or public health officials um, simply because I think you're getting enough of that. And there's so much great content, some of which, you know, I had in the can already. This week's episode is a great example of that. So let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, this week, I interview an incredible author and science journalist. She's um, written for Scientific American, Psychology Today, The Atlantic, The New York Times. Her work is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And her newest book is, it's just beautiful. It's called Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Um, it's such a great uh it's such a great interview for me that I got to do. Also, I learned a lot about it. And I think it really renewed a lot of things um, that I don't know, some of us might be struggling with right now. But I do have to say this is the caveat at the very beginning. We recorded this before all of this coronav uh, coronavirus nonsense before the COVID-19 stuff. So there are probably recommendations and conversations in this interview about being near the people you love and holding their hands and putting your arms around them. And I know that we're in a time right now of not social distancing, that's the old word, but physical distancing. So remember, that doesn't mean that we can't be close to the people we love psychologically. We can't be close to them verbally. We can't look at them through screens. It only means that we can't touch them. We can't be near them so that we don't infect them or they don't infect us. So I want you to take what we say 
in the interview and maybe contextualize it within these strange times that we're living in. And um, we're all doing it anyway, right? We're all learning how to be alone together. Um, and so just keep that in mind as you listen. So guys, without any further ado, here she is, Lydia Denworth. Well, Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to talk about your newest book, Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. How great that a celebrated science writer decided to write about something that is so science, but for whatever reason, I think people have historically not given its do. Like friendship is so fundamental. Relationships are so fundamental to not just the human, but the um, but the you know experience of species, many species on this planet. Yet for some reason, we've always thought of it as kind of like a silly thing. We have it's it's this kind of squishy, you know, ephemeral yeah. friendship. Um, it's like it's also just so familiar that we think we know all about it. We think we appreciate it, but yeah, it's never really risen to the top of the charts kind of so to speak and but part of my whole idea here was that I, I you know I spend all this time talking to scientists and listening when they talk to each other about what they think is new and interesting and important and I realized that there was this new line of research really on um on the biology of social behavior and friendship in particular and also about this evolutionary story that that underpins friendship. And I thought, well, that's new. Like nobody, you know, there's serious science here and quite literally scientists are taking it more seriously. They're giving it more respect. And so that is what gave me entree. I thought, well, you know, if I find that interesting and it's this subject, you know, it's, this is a perfect it's a perfect way to to do a book to say, hey, there's actually something new that you should know about this this seemingly everyday thing. I think the line that I use in the book is that friendship has been hiding in plain sight. Absolutely. You know, when I look at like a lot of the work that you've um, done as a science writer, it does seem like there's at least some pull in kind of the biology and brain, the sort of psychology biology interplay. Like this is an area of of interest for you globally. And then, of course, with this book, you you focus more on these aff affiliative relationships. What what has led you historically to cover what you do cover? Ah, yeah. Well, it's 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 shifted over time a little bit. Um, so I was not always a science journalist, for one thing. Um, maybe I don't know how far you've dug into my bio, but um, I was a much more general interest reporter for years, and I covered. But I covered a lot of sort of social issue things like education and health, and that's actually how I got into science in the first place. Was my first book is really a it's an environmental science book. And I was interested primarily in kind of children's health, which was a more natural outgrowth of what I'd been doing than where I am now. But it, it, uh, as, as it happened to tell that story in that first book, which is the, a dual biography of a scientist and a doctor who, uh, basically were among the first to understand that lead was as harmful as it was and then got into a big fight with science. So it's the, uh, sorry, with industry. It's the, it's the, one of the first 
big environmental showdowns between science and industry over risk and uh, what we put into the environment and how sure we should be about what it might do. And uh, and so I was really fascinated by that. But the scientist that was one of the protagonists was a geochemist at Caltech doing really technical work. But I knew that he was such an important part of the story. So there I was, a sort of, you know, general interest social issue reporter suddenly having to read hardcore geochemical journal articles. <laughs> and I had my science dictionaries on, you know, on the desk for every third word. And, and, um, and I, but the thing was, you know, there were times where I thought this is just never going to work, but, but it did work. And so I, I really, I enjoyed it. The story felt important. It felt worth telling. And I also was a I liked the challenge of having to explain something to myself, you know, um, because I didn't have a science background. And so, but from there, I, the next book I did was about the brain because um, by then my youngest son was born and he is deaf and uses a cochlear implant. And so I suddenly found myself just naturally on the cutting edge of some really fascinating science and also kind of thrown into uh a political battle of sorts. There is a battle about the use of technology in the deaf community, deaf with a capital D. And so that book, you know, that got me naturally interested in, well, in the brain, because suddenly here was my third kid. I had two others. I was this well-educated person and, and a professional and a science writer by then, but had never really thought about, um, the how much deafness is about the brain and not just the ears. And, you know, I was living it every day. The technology, is, uh, cochlear implants are uh, miraculous technology, truly, in that I say that in that they can restore um, a sense for the first time ever. I mean, we've never been able to do that. Now, it's more complicated than that, and they don't restore it to anything like what it's like if you hear. But anyway, but that was fascinating, and it felt like a, but the brain story part of it felt like what I could contribute as a science journalist, you know, as both a mom in this situation, and then professionally, I happened to be in the position of being able to call you know, some of the leading people in that whole world and talk to them about how they figured this out, how they invented this technology, what it means in the brain for sound to come in or not, and how that leads to language and literacy. And so that is what got me into writing about the brain. And you're quite right that pretty much after that book, I that was came out about five years ago or six years ago now, I guess, from then on, I thought of myself as someone who primarily covers neuroscience and psychology. Um, and I was doing a lot of work for Scientific American, where I'm now a contributing editor. And I write the Brainwaves blog for Psychology Today. So I still do quite a lot of neuroscience. And that that is actually, you wouldn't think it, but that is what brought me to friendship. I was at a social neuroscience conference and I was intrigued by the fact that there was such a thing, right? You don't think of, I mean, well, it, it, in fact, in science, there are all these fields that have now got these subfields, subspecialties with social appended at the beginning, right? Social epidemiology, social psychology, social neuroscience. And they're all after the same thing, understanding more about what happens when we connect with other people and looking at it in terms of health, in terms of 
emotions and psychology, but also in in neuroscience, they're really so in, in addition to mapping the connections inside your brain, which is what we often think of neuroscientists as doing, they're realizing that they need to map the connections outside of you to other people and ha- and look at how those connections sort of come back and change, have the power to change your physiology and the trajectory of your life, even how long you will live, all these things. Uh, and so I just thought it was fascinating. And it was it was exactly the thing that you put your finger on, like why, you know, serious science friendship, that the sort of unexpectedness of that pairing was what made me think, you know, I should do this and I won't do a reference, like a how-to book about friendship. I'm going to write the serious, you know, the literary science book about friendship because who else is doing that? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Right. Yeah. And- I mean, it's so funny. I, I think about, I mean, when your, when your book first came across my desk, it was an instant like, oh, I want to talk to her. Oh, this is like a really important thing for Talk Nerdy. And I think a lot of it is because my own personal interests sort of converge on that because my background was in neuroscience. I did my master's in neuroscience. And of course, just like you said, like I was studying in vitro, um, you know, murine, like mouse tissue in vitro and looking at what happens uh, to the substantia nigra in different like Parkinson's models. Mm -hmm. And then and then I moved on, you know, I've worked for as a science communicator for 10 years and now I'm back in school um, and I'm studying clinical psychology. And um, and the interesting thing is it's Within clinical psychology, you do see certain camps where like it's almost so understood that social interaction is fundamental to mental health that it's almost like a given. Um, and you um, it, it's like we skipped over the part where we took the time to really talk about why it is that social isolation is so detrimental and that friendship or affiliative relationships are are that is psychology. Like we do not exist if not in reference or in context with other people. Um, and, and it's like such a given in psychology yet. It's such a given that we often don't even talk about it. (laughs) And so I'm so glad that you were like, let's take this thing that in certain fields, people don't even think of as being important in other fields. People are realizing it's so important that like, well, duh, let's move on and, and let's actually start to parse it out. Um, and that's what I want to do with you today is like start to parse this out because it's such a it's such an important conversation to be had and maybe maybe one of the first things to me that's the most obvious but I'm not sure if the people listening think this way is that okay why do we know friendship is important because if we don't have social relationships then look at what happens to people and I know that you dug into that in the book like what is what does the lack of friendship or the lack of these kinds of relationships look like in in somebody's psychology, neuroscience, mental health, physical health, even. Well, it started, of course, with uh, with just people beginning to notice or wonder in the second half of the 20th century that was the beginning of of recognizing that there was a correlation between social connection and literally dying and how how soon you died, right? And it was it was it was extreme because you know life, uh, whether you were alive or dead was the sort of non-negotiable variable they could measure. And, you know, that was a period, <laughs> I mean, right, it's not as complicated as, you know, you're sick, but what could be the causes? You either lived or died. And 
And so, but so it started with, I mean, I actually think this is really, I was a history major. I said I had no background in science. My, my background is really in history. And I, so all my books do have quite a lot of history in them because I'm fascinated by how thinking evolves and how we get from, you know, point A to point B. So in, in the, in this case, in beginning to understand why friendship is so important, what had to, one thing that happened is that in medicine and in public health, in the first half of the 20th century, the concern was all infectious disease. Um, or, and of course, now you and I are recording this as coronavirus is running rampant around the world. So perhaps we're back um, to this era. But but you know, we really did make great strides. And figure out, you know, we got once we got vaccinations and sanitation and antibiotics and things like that, you know, um, the rate of infectious disease and or that as a leading cause of death dropped dramatically. And so then what that left everybody trying to figure out were the causes of more chronic conditions like cancer and heart disease and stroke. And that was when they started these big, long range studies like the Framingham Heart Study is the most famous one that people are familiar with, where you take thousands of people in a community and you follow them sometimes for decades. I mean, Framingham, I think it began in the 50s. I'm forgetting exactly, but it's still going today. And and there were a handful of these that got started in the U.S. and elsewhere um, in that sort of second half of the 20th century. And the, initially, the idea was to look for risk factors for heart disease and things like that. Like, in fact, Framingham gave us the term risk factor. Uh, but a few people had the idea of adding in some social measures to this. So they were very straightforward. Like, you know, are you married? Do you belong to a church or a volunteer organization? And how many times a month do you see your family? It was kind of quantitative, right? You know, just kind of counting up. But it did allow for a, a rough sense of how integrated the people in the study were. And so uh, a young woman named Lisa Berkman in the 1970s was getting her degree in social epidemiology at um, Berkeley, which had just become a thing, social epidemiology. Wow, in the in, 70s. In the late Even 70s. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. just started. And she was really, she had the idea of taking data from one of these studies, the Alameda County Health Study, which was um, a county outside of San Francisco. And she, what she did basically, it started in 1965 and she was looking at it at the, in the late 70s. She took the data and, and she just had this very basic count of how socially integrated people in the study were. And then she said, okay, based on how integrated they said they were in 1965 at the start, all the way through to 1974, because that was the data she had nine years, who died and who didn't, right? How likely were they to have died? And it became, and it was clear that the people who were less socially integrated, less, more isolated, were much more likely to have died in the nine years since the start of the study. That oh, was all right. So, so she showed just this correlation, right? But yeah, it, and they don't know the intervening variables. We don't know how it works, but we do know that on average, people who don't have a lot of friends or aren't in strong relationships are dying younger. Are dying younger. And so since then, we've gone on to show this in many, many ways. And most recently, there was a... Um, I mean, there was a famous paper in 1988. Jim House at Michigan showed was took six studies, including Alameda that Lisa Berkman had worked on, and uh, and 
and he was the one that said social isolation is as risky for your health, has the same risk factor risk, risk factor as smoking, uh, and that it was wow. you know potentially is. So we've a strong statement, a very strong statement, rather daring at the time. But he he said to me, he said that did get people's attention. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> it, it set off alarm bells nationwide. But so still, you were, and then in well, and then just to finish the thought in 2010, Julianne Helt Lundstedt at Brigham Young, who is often associated, she'll she'll be quoted in most stories you'll find about this stuff today. She's the sort of younger, the current generation working on it, but she did then this really big meta-analysis, so a study of studies where she looked at, uh, I think it was 148 studies. Jim House had only six because that's all there were back in 1988. She had 148. She had over 300,000 people, and most of them had been followed the most of the studies went for an average of seven and a half years. And what she found was that your social connections, your level of social integration um, made you, well, I guess put it this way. So instead of looking at how likely you were to die, she was looking at how likely you were to survive. Uh, so what she found was that the more socially connected you were, the more likely you were to survive for the duration of the study. 50% more likely you were to survive. And so so we really know for sure that there is this connection now. And what's happened since is now the research has really gone into in the 90s and 2000s and, and 2010s has been about why, trying to understand what is it that's happening under the skin? How is it that social relationships that exist outside your body could get into your cells and change things like the way your immune system responds? And it turns out that it does. Um, and it's it's fascinating. So that that's the piece. When I said at the beginning that there's this biology to all of this, that is one of the big pieces is its connection to health. And this is why it really matters. This is not frivolous. Uh, you know, friendship is not some nice to have thing. It's, it is fundamental for our health. You know, and of course it's incredibly complicated. And I don't think that we'll even have enough time in, in our conversation today to get too deep into the brass tacks. I think hopefully we can hit some of the overarching reasons um, or or what we kind of, some of the, the takeaways of what we know about friendship and, and why it's so fundamental to our health. But uh, what about these kind of extreme examples? Like we know based on these big epidemiological or social epidemiological epidemiological longitudinal studies that, okay, there's a correlation between dying younger and not having um, these relationships. But there have been historical examples. Um, oftentimes, it's really hard to separate because they involve abuse or neglect, but where people are socially isolated, or we look at, uh, what do you call it, in prison, we look at, um, you know, um, yeah, solitary confinement, and and we see the negative psychological and and physiological consequences of that. It's it's much more than oh they don't have friends. It's they literally aren't interacting with human beings. But it's very severe, right? In a short amount of time. Oh yeah, it it's it's terrible for human beings to be completely alone like that. Uh, now. That said, because I know we'll get in the comments, we'll get, <laughs> we, you always hear from the people who really like to be alone, who say they're introverts, who say they, you know, they're just fine. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, I'll, you know, 
I'll say that, yes, it is possible to, some people are more introverted and some are more extroverted, but even introverts usually have one or two good friends and uh, they just like to socialize with them one-on-one. And that's fine, actually, from a biological point of view, from your health, the biggest step change is from zero to one (laughs) in terms of number of friends. You don't have to be the life of the party. You don't have to have 10 best friends. Uh, You really need to have one. It's better to have more than that, but it is not essential, right? That's the, the the biggest difference is zero to one. So, but it's also true that that there is there is really great benefit we get just from sort of interacting with people in a more casual way, day in day out. We call you know um, sociologists call that weak those weak ties, and uh, and they say though that that you can see a difference between people who who have, you know, a neighbor to wave hello to and can chat at the water cooler and things like that in that very casual way that someone in solitary confinement is, of course, not doing. Uh, or children who are who are um, confined or, or abused in some way and don't have social interaction. I mean, they really don't grow up to be normal people. But that is one of the, I mean, that is the extreme, but it's part of why this is so important and interesting is that is that understanding how bad it can be when it goes wrong tells you something about how important it is for a healthy life, for it to yeah. be normal, right? And to be, uh, yeah. That kind of average spectrum. And of course, like you said, there is individual variation. There are people who have more or less friends and who thrive kind of under different ideal circumstances. But like you said, like, you know, these like early, like feral children case studies and things like that. Well, this and is- their brains just don't develop in the, in the normal way, in a typical way. And, uh, and yes, it's very extreme on lots of levels. And they, I mean, many of them didn't learn language and things like that. So, it's you know then it becomes hard to unpack but it but it yeah. is true what that you know what? that that clearly i mean humans are designed for social interaction and we're good at it it's and primates are mostly designed for not for social interaction it's something we excel at not every species is exactly the same in how they go about it but but most of them are very social and 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 humans certainly are and I, you know, it's not for nothing that the Unabomber comes up a lot in my conversations because people say <laughs> people bring him up, but it's kind of true, right? That that's somebody who wants to go lock themselves away and live. You know, I mean, he was he was not well mentally, but but he was isolated in a way that was unusual. So there is, and I'm sure you know, and I mean, in clinical psychology, you often look at you know, where there's dysfunction in order to also understand what's healthy. And what I wanted to do in this book, I mean, so much of the attention has been on loneliness. And of course, I write about that extensively in the book, but I wanted to flip it around too, though, and and really emphasize the benefits of positive social connection because it's two sides of the same coin. And, and so what, you know, if loneliness tells you how, if, if one set of research tells you how bad it is to be lonely, then the other side of it, which we haven't explored as fully, but is partly understood and is partly being explored on its own now, is the other side of it is how how critical it is uh, to be connected and to feel like you belong. 
And it's funny because uh, you just mentioned that like it's almost not been studied to the extent uh, as kind of like these isolation um, studies, but uh, at least coming from this clinical psychology perspective, I can tell you that probably most clinicians sort of just intuitively understand that from a sort of strengths-based perspective, the prognosis for our clients, the people we serve, is always going to be higher if they have like certain kind of pre-morbid, um, uh, you know, features. And one of those is, do they have strong social support? Like people with strong social support are always in a better position to thrive. They're always in a better position to get well or to, um, recover or, you know, whatever it is your, your specific goal is in therapy. Um, if they have, you know, loving people who care for them and are able to support them through their journey, um, I'm, I'm much less worried as, as a clinician. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and I, and I think it's great that clinicians see that and have operated that way. What I think is interesting and what I hope that a book like mine brings to the discussion is is more information on why it matters so much, what it is it gives us. Because for instance, relatively early on, and even today, um, when when those connections were made and people said, yes, you're much healthier if you're socially connected, they thought that the reason probably was the idea of social support. And I'm sure you know what that is, but it's, you know, yeah, I just right? use that term when I was, when I was describing it. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's like if you're moving, your friend comes help you or to help you or if you lose. Or if you're family, sad, they put their sad, arm around they, you. Yeah, or yeah. they bring you lasagna or ice cream or something. Yeah. Or, or most pragmatically, they um, they like are there to drive you to the hospital should you need to go. And I was talking about this to somebody else who who literally said, oh, gosh, that just happened. Like sh she had had a seizure and her friends happened to be there and were able to take her to the hospital quite literally. So that is a thing and that is real. But here's here's what I think is so fascinating is that once they started to recognize that there's friendship or something like it in other species, they were able to see, so there are these long-running studies of baboons in Africa, and and the critical thing is that it turned out that for these baboons, the ones with the strongest social bonds live longer and have more and healthier babies. And in evolutionary terms, reproductive success and longevity is as good as it gets, right? That's what you're after. And baboons, and this was, a, the strong social bonds was actually more important than where they sat in the dominance hierarchy, which was really surprising to the primatologists who watched these animals. And baboons don't drive each other to the hospital, right? They can't provide social support the way we think of it in humans. So while it's true that all those things that it's more obvious that friends do for each other are are a factor, there is something more fundamental going on. And it's the work in the other species that allows us to see that, right? And then yeah. once you know that, then you can start to explore, well, like, what is it? What's what's happening um, in the cells and in your brain and um, in your gene expression and things like that? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. It's, it's so interesting that you that you mentioned this sort of concrete, almost like behaviorist approach to trying to understand um, social support. Um, Cause I, I guess I don't think of it that way, but it's probably because of the way that my, uh, 
my focus in psychology is oriented. So it's funny that coming from this neuroscience perspective, you'd think that I'd be like very CBT. And it's like, you know, kind of what you're describing is like, well, you know, the crazy cat lady who like dies alone and then the cat eats her face. Like, <laughs> oh, as long as I have friends, that's never going to happen to me. I'm not going to choke to death on my microwave dinner. Um, that that's sort of the view. But I, I, I think the funny thing is when I even first mentioned it, I was thinking from a more existential perspective because that's my orientation in psychology. And a lot of existentialists believe in this, like these four givens of existence, this idea that people come to therapy and people seek out treatment because of one of these core reasons that they might be suffering. And just as a quick summary, they are fear of death, um, meaninglessness, the struggle between freedom and responsibility. But the fourth one is loneliness, that that's a fundamental existential truth that people struggle with feeling lonely and that people crave social interaction and that it's 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 necessary for a thriving psychologically healthy being so it's it's interesting that there's and and existential psychology is much more theoretically driven it's much more born out of philosophy than it is out of um practice right it's it's not so much derived from like empirically derived and so it's really interesting to see that sort of all roads in a way have led to this understanding I, and i think that's really an important part of science is that th- you love to see that <laughs> right it tells you mm, yeah. that that there really is something going on here where because each each discipline has its own contribution to make. Uh, and, and I think they're all important. I mean, each, you know, each, each adds something, but it, but it's also important to understand for if there is a biology to it, for instance, then that tells you something about how you have to or how to, well, it tells you something about solutions or it tells you something about um, diagnoses or measurement or, you know, uh, not that you have to do that all the time. But so it's interesting. I'm curious. So I hadn't heard that framing of those four things and loneliness being part of it. But I wondered if you were familiar with the work, um, John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who really was the pioneer who put loneliness on the map. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away. Not so long ago, but he um, he thinks he thought of loneliness as the body's as a as a physical response akin to hunger and thirst. That it oh, was interesting. And so, was he a neuroscientist? He was or a or social a psychologist. He was a social oh, psychologist, but he was one of the founders of that discipline of social neuroscience. Actually, so he thought that you needed to. Uh, so he did. I mean, he brought in other people with more neuroscience training to work with him. But he he was really interested in looking at the physiological responses to psychological phenomenon, and he uh, and he. Um, so he thought that loneliness was, you know, your body telling you that you needed connection and that you better do something about it, right? And then he did look at the brain like it's it's kind of a, a threat response, actually, like you you feel under threat. And so unfortunately, one thing that happens is the lonelier we are, and I bet you see this in therapy, sometimes the less able we are to connect because yeah, oh yeah right <laughs> we like a negative uh, feedback loop. right yeah. a negative feedback loop and he saw it as um as a threat as a sort of 
primal threat response, you know, sense of being threatened and uh, that it and social skills were often one of the first things to go. And they did that in the lab. They induced that sense of loneliness in people and then found that even uh, participants who normally were very socially able could be made to be much less socially skilled if they if they, you induced loneliness in them. And uh, so, yeah, it was fascinating stuff. But so I think what is so interesting is putting it all together and seeing, yeah. you know, and having each thing help inform the other. It's like a grand kind of unified theory of friendship. I love this. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, but the thing that's really important is, you know, Cassiopo, even though he made his name studying loneliness and, and that's, uh, and he was studying it in part because it's easier to measure a negative sometimes. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And like it's a also, laugh sometimes. yeah. And it's, and it's, a, and as a public health issue, that's really what you want to know is does this, the absence of friendship make you ill? (laughs) That was his theory, right? And now we know that it does. But of course, what that tells you is that by extension, that tells you that friendship make, you know, keeps you healthy. And what he, but he would say, he was the first to say loneliness was not his true subject. His true subject was the positive connections between people. Um, This was just a way of highlighting it by focusing on the negative. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, that's fascinating to see. So, the, and obviously, he is just one of many um, in a long kind of history. As you were able to really dig deep into in detail, who who contributed to this story of number one, what happens in kind of in the positive? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are we better for having social connections? But then on the flip side, you know, what happens to us? Um, like you said, because it's sometimes a little easier to study from the negative perspective, what happens to us physiologically, not just psychologically, when we lack these social connections. And and it looks like, I mean, from what you're telling us in this book, a lot happens and it ain't good. (laughs) No, it affects (laughs) your cardiovascular functioning, your immune system, your cognitive health, your mental health your stress responses, and even the rate at which your cells age. Um, the little cow. And, and fundamentally, that contributes directly to mortality. It does. It does. So there is still a lot to work out about what's happening, what, you know, what scientists call the mechanisms and pathways, you know, inside the body. How, how exactly is this working? But just as one example, I, I like to talk about the work on the immune system because they actually, what they did was they took um, people in Cassiopo's studies. So he had these lonely older adults in Chicago he was studying and he had blood samples from them. And he hooked up with a genomicist from UCLA who was able to start doing sequencing of the of the genome. And, in the, and so he took these blood samples and what they, essentially what they found is that the loneliest people, the in their immune system. So they were looking at genes in the immune system that controlled your response to inflammation and to viral response. And so it was not, not just the gene, but the gene expression, right? How, whether those genes get turned on or off. And, and what they found was that the people who were really lonely, the, the sort of bottom of the, of the group, the loneliest people were much more susceptible to inflammation and to viruses 
these their gene expression was different. And then the people at the other end of the scale who were the most socially connected were much more resilient and their gene expression looked different, right? It was it was the opposite. It was turned the other way so that they were more um, less susceptible to inflammation and viruses. And and that was just fascinating because, you know, the Steve Cole, the genomicist, said to me, he said, you know, when he saw it, he said it, it, it didn't take any kind of immunologist more than five minutes of looking at this to see that, oh, look at this pattern. <laughs> like, what is going on here? And he said, why would your leukocytes care about loneliness, your white blood cells? Yeah. Why would they care? And how do they even know? How do they know? How do they know? Yeah. And so that's what he has been, he's been studying ever since um, this he he ended up giving it a name. It's conserved transcriptomic response to adversity, I think, CTRA. And and the really interesting thing is that what he then found, he found that same response in the immune system in other people, ultimately, in people who were suffering from great poverty or uh, trauma. But but you could sort of say, oh, well, maybe that means that the work in loneliness is not as important. But no, loneliness is where they found it first. And what for Steve Cole and John Cassiopo, what it told them was loneliness is right up there with the worst things that people can experience in terms of its physiological effect on the body. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, agnostic.com. Now, agnostic.com is a free online social community for humanists, atheists, and skeptics. For some people, it's a place to nurture your humanist or non-religious principles. And for others, it's a place to recover from a religious past that might have been damaging, or even for people who have questions, for people who aren't really sure and they, they want to learn more. But honestly, for all of the over 100,000 members of agnostic.com, this is a safe haven where people of like minds can express themselves freely, they can learn, or they can connect with one another. Guys, this is a safe place to share your thoughts and opinions, get involved in secular causes, keep up with news, and make friends, especially if you live in a community where, you know, it's not very common to meet other people who are secular. This could be a really good um, opportunity for you. Now, remember, this is not an anti-religion website. It's a pro-skeptic, pro-humanistic community. Everyone's invited to join, even if you are religious. It's totally free. Your information will not be sold. So go check out agnostic.com and visit the Talk Nerdy fan space at agnostic.com slash nerdy, where I might stop in from time to time to interact with you guys and say hello. Again, that's agnostic.com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Has this been also, because we we know that there are sort of like social um, impacts and I guess behavioral impacts that we see in other organisms, non-human animals, specifically primates, but have, has some of this kind of physiological and even like cellular or immunological data been, or studies, have they been replicated in like chimpanzees yes. or bonobos, for yes. example? Yes. Um, cool. So like Steve Cole, who I just mentioned, he works a lot with a guy named John Capitanio at UC Davis Primate Center. And so in the rhesus macaques there, they've seen 
this same pattern and they were able to go in. And in fact, so those those three guys, the two Johns, Cassiopo and Capitano and um, Steve Cole have done did work all together where they actually put primates and humans in the same study <laughs> where they oh, were wow. where they were looking at all of these responses that I'm just describing and some other things as well. But yeah, it's very, it's very cool. And it does help when you can look at it in other species. It, it tells you something about, um, I mean, you can strip away some of the other variables. You can also look at, you know, some of the tissue in a way that is, you know, can't do with humans. Yeah, and so, humans. Uh, right. Yeah, and you can so, do you, certain types of studies. You can and also do, tell you what's conserved genetically. Yes, exactly. And so yeah. rhesus macaques, you know, are not our closest relatives. Chimpanzees and bonobos are, but uh, but they're not too far off relative to other animals. And um, there's, their social behavior is quite similar to ours and their brains are similar enough that we can really learn something from them. And so, yes, they have, they have done all this work there. And then, um, I mean, I, I mentioned the baboons in Africa, but there's other places where they're studying other kinds of non-human primates like Puerto Rico. They're studying rhesus macaques there too, where they're just watching the social behavior. So there's different ways. So these are actually wild organisms. Yeah, wild or semi-wild. So the baboons yeah. in Africa are wild. These rhesus macaques in Puerto Rico are what's called semi-wild. So they were brought to this island in 1938 where their ancestors were. And they are fed because there wouldn't be enough food on this island. Um, but, and there's no natural predators there. But otherwise... They just exist day in, day out the way they normally would, right? You know, like they socialize they're and they're not, they're not in cages. They live on the island and they, yeah. And so, uh, so you can get a lot of information about their social behavior. It's not exactly the same as if they were wild, but, uh, you know, fully wild living in, in um, India or where they originally came from. But, uh, but there's a lot that it can tell us and you can stand there. So the scientists who watch them are kind of like exacting gossip columnists and they just, they keep <laughs> track of exactly who does what to whom and in what order and who was nearby. And then in time, they look at what seems to happen because of it, right? So by tracking these, these animals over years and years and generations, you can learn a lot about the science of friendship and evolutionary biology and what and what sort of being bonded does for an in, for a, an individual an organism um, in that case a monkey but you know there there do seem to be direct uh, lessons for humans yeah I love this I mean this is this is one of those podcast episodes where you know sometimes when I talk to a writer or a scientist we sort of structure the conversation as like the beginning, a middle and end of like a story that we're telling or, you know, where, where's the research leading us and what exactly are your findings, blah, blah, blah. But this is one of those few situations and it, it doesn't happen very often where I'm just like, okay, I have another question. Okay, I, have another question. <laughs> I love that. That's so, great. There's, there's a big one that comes up for me because I'm sitting here talking to you. And while I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm looking deeply into the eyes of my best friend who happens to be a dog. Um, I also have human best friends. Friends, I yes. promise. Uh, but I'm wondering about this idea, you know, you're writing about friendship. And of course, we think about friendship generally as uh, in in interspecies, no, intra, Con, no, inter, yes, conspecific, yes, within right, species, like within species, yes. right. 
<laughs> not across species. But of course, there are these like few random, very specific examples, especially I feel like with dog domestication, where, you know, my dog has a couple of dog friends in that he knows my you know, a girl who used to be my roommate, they kind of came up together and there's certain dogs that he might see at a dog park. But the truth of the matter, he spends most of his time with me and he's much more connected to me than I've ever seen him be connected to another dog. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, I have a relationship with him that's very different, I guess you could say, than the type of relationship I have with other people then again, now that I'm even saying this, I'm wondering if it's more like a friendship relationship or more like a familial kind of love relationship. Uh, well, um, so we can get into that in a second because I have some ideas about how this new science both clarifies what friendship is, but ah. also but also blurs the lines. Um, but okay. that's, there I'm talking about family, romance, and friends in humans. Yeah, like what's but, the crossover? What's but, the Venn diagram? Yes, well, let, me, let me get to that in just a second, but let me just answer okay. your question to the extent that I can, because I did not look at this in the book, uh, This uh -huh. the, the human-pet relationship, because I was really focused on all the work um, that's within species. I did talk about several different kinds. I mean, it's a lot about non-human primates, but I do mention, you know, but within their species, dolphins and sheep. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. did you know that sheep can recognize the face of a sheep that they grew up with after years of separation that they recognize each other? I just, That's, see, I can't even do that. I thought that was so <laughs> cool. But what it tells us something, <laughs> I mean, the reason it's relevant besides being kind of cool is that and giving you new appreciation for sheep um, is that it, it, you know, it's all about how important facial recognition is. Right. And that uh, brain yeah. is kind of wired for that. But but um, but the thing I was going to say is that the pet question has come up in practically every interview or book talk <laughs> that I've given. No, no, not not no diss on you just to say how <laughs> interested people are in this, obviously. And so yeah. with the full disclaimer that I didn't I didn't dig into this. Right. I didn't study this research in the same way, but I have been talking about it with a lot of people now. And mm -hmm. so it's it is true for sure. And there is a lot of work on there is a lot of work on the human dog and other animal <laughs> connection. Um, I just haven't I haven't read it all. But but there's a very strong bond there. And of course, dogs have been domesticated to to bond to humans, right? We've yeah. we've encouraged we've them. Them we've chosen them for, um, and in fact, there's a guy. You know, canine cognition is now a really hot field, and I'm quite interested in it. Um, and there's a guy named Brian Hare at Duke, maybe you've heard of, who does a lot of work in this field. But he he looks at the evolution of friend. He he um, talks about the survival of friendliest the friendliest, like I do, and he. Uh, and he's studying it in in dogs, though, and in in wolves and foxes and things like that, and where you know, looking at domestication. And so, um, but but um, but the thing that I was going to say is that between so it's when you're staring into your dog's eyes and you're loving each other, I'm sure that there's oxytocin that that triggers in both of your brains, and you know, it makes you feel good, and. And I know we have a golden retriever in my family. We call her a therapy dog because basically anybody raises their voice and the pip 
she trots right over and she, you know, she, she wants to be petted and she tries to calm people down. And, or if she sees anybody crying, you know, she's, she's right there trying to help. She clearly cares, you know, or is aware. I can't say what she knows or cares, you know, I, but (laughs) But she's like, she engages when somebody's upset. Um, So there is a bond there. That's, there's no question. It is not the same thing as friendship fully (laughs) with, um, you know, with your, um, I mean, because in humans, we really, there's of course conversation and all the other things that we get. Um, there are, there are deeper levels to it, but, but it is, um, and, and there are limits to the reciprocity and cooperation that can, that, uh, a pet can really provide the support that a pet can provide a human. And, and that's a a critical piece of, of friendship in, it has to have a sort of minimum of three things. And this is true in baboons and in people and in, in other species, some other species as well. It has, it takes time. So it's longstanding. These relationships, they're positive. So they have to develop. They have to develop over time. They're positive. They have to make both individuals feel good. You've got that going with your dog. Um, and then they have to have this r- reciprocity and cooperation, which is a kind of give and take. It's partly that social support we were talking about, but it's also just kind of the being there for each other. But but it's, it's you know, being able to pick up the phone and, and help someone in a time of crisis. And in, when anthropologists and know that they're there for you. And know you. that they're there for you yeah. and you're there for, you know, and vice versa, right? All that. And my uh, dog. That's true. It's a very like master. It's there's versus, just a limit. Like it, there's an alpha. There. There's yeah, no yeah, limit yeah. to what is possible there. Um, and yeah. so it isn't exactly the same. But now I will say that if you then look at that same definition, and and it's important to point out that with all that biology and health that I was talking about earlier, the relationships that really have the power to give you that are primarily the really quality relationships. And the thing that that made me realize is that. In many ways, I think friendship is a template for all other relationships because if you think about what are, you know, what are the relationships that, that are most sort of straight up positive in your life, they usually are <laughs> your good friends because you've chosen them and you've created this positive um, in sort of ambiance to your, to your interactions. Hopefully, we hope. Now, we... Yeah, if you're more like kind of psychologically... Um, I guess, uh, aware and healthy, you were able to drop or, or, you know, um, close out, terminate the quote unquote, the less healthy, yeah. very, the less, less healthy. Right. Healthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I get this question a lot. Um, you know, what, well, what about <laughs> the old friend that you have a lot of shared history with, but who you find draining, you know, and, uh, yeah, exactly. and yeah. yeah, it's not so easy, but it, it is true that, that those, if a relationship is uh, more negative than positive, it's really not one you should be spending as much time on. Um, it doesn't mean you have to get them out of your life entirely, although that's an option, but, or you have to really work at improving the relationship. Um, and so, but, but what I think happens and what the, some of the science is showing is that this is where the blurring of the lines. So that happens is that, you know, it can be in your inner circle, and most of us have an average of just four people in our most inner circle, and they're kind of split between family and friends for most of us, but it depends, like if you're married or if you're not married or, you know, who's in that circle. But what they all have to have in common is is those those 
sort of positive traits of the relationships, right? That they're that they're stable and long lasting, reliable, that they're positive, they make you feel good, and that they have that cooperative reciprocity going on. And uh and if you've got that, it doesn't matter if it's your sister or your spouse or your just friend. You know, in the traditional definition of a friend is someone that you don't have sex with, except for friends with benefits, I know. But, you know, that's, that's <laughs> why we use the word friend usually to say it's not we're not having sex and you're not related. But in fact, I have come to think of the word friend as just purely qualitative as a way of describing the quality of the relationship, I guess is how I want to say it. And um, and so when you describe your spouse or your significant other or your sibling or your parent as your best friend, mostly not your parent, that's one relationship where it's harder to do vertical. But sometimes but- you do see it with adult women and their mothers. I, I've seen, like, I don't have that with my mom. Like, she's my mom. But I know people who are like, my mom's my best friend. And we go shopping and we get our nails and done. So and if, we, right, you know. exactly. And so if they're saying that, it's because they're signaling something about the value added in that relationship and the kind of interaction that they have, right? That tells you how positive it is for them. And we don't do that if we if we don't feel that way, right? Because sometimes, unfortunately, romantic relationships and, and and family relationships can be just, they can be lacking or they can even be toxic, right? And, um, yeah. and we oh. do tend to shed the friends that are that way, which is one reason, you know, they don't have to work as hard. I mean, they don't have as many institutional constraints on those relationships. You're not legally bound. You're not biologically related. Um, and so, yeah, those really have a lot of power, right? Like a marriage license or a blood relationship can, can make people feel very, um, uh, I, I don't want to say forced, but they, you know, feel like they have to work harder in order to maintain something as opposed to a choice friend where it's like, this isn't working. I'm, you know, I'm putting a lot in and I'm not getting anything out of this. I don't want to spend any more time on it. Right. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's just much harder to extract yourself from, from those other kinds of connections. Um, And I'm not saying that those relationships are really important and they have their own role, right? And they're not entirely the same as friends. So don't, don't let me over, you know, don't, I don't want people to think I'm overstating this, but I do think that there's a sort of important point to recognize though about the quality of the relationships that you have with everyone in your life. And, um, and that, you know, that's something to strive for because it's going to be good for your health (laughs) and everybody else's health. Right. And that now, and that understanding how much of an effect this stuff has on your biology ought to motivate us to think a little harder about how we, um, how we interact with everybody who's in our lives day to day. So, so this idea then that kind of leads to this conversation then about, you know, what, what a lot of people might consider like a toxic friendship or like a frenemy or like somebody where it's like, there are certain situations where you will see that individuals will maintain a non-blood or non-contractual relationship with somebody that's really negatively impacting their lives, but they just can't seem to extricate themselves. I mean, would in, in your research and writing, do you really tie this to kind of some psychological um, issues, you know, comb- having these two people stay together regardless of the fact that it's painful for them? 
I I don't get into that in great detail. I mean, I do I do discuss. Um, I more most of what's in the book on this is um, so. There's a, a researcher who specializes in studying ambivalent relationships, and uh, and he measures that as pretty broadly. So, as a caveat, let me say that you know people who if if you have you know some positive feelings and any negative feelings about someone in the study then he kept, he calls it an ambivalent relationship and they're partly they cast the net wide there because they think that people will be less likely to admit to negative feelings about some of the people around them <laughs> and so you want isn't that every relationship right. well it's half it's nearly half um it yeah, is nearly yeah. half and of course we can't get rid of all of those people in our lives nor should we but what is interesting is in friendship then like why don't people when it really is not so great. And and it does seem, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons, and I'm sure you've run up against them in, in psychology, but it's, uh, you know, often people aren't actually able to see just how negative it is. I mean, I've, and of course, this is another thing that keeps coming up when I'm talking with people is that they, they tell me about some friend or relative who's in some really toxic friendship, but doesn't seem to be able to see how toxic it is and and so that self-awareness or that awareness of the relationship can be hard to come by sometimes but but I also think that we assume that the positives outweigh the negatives and it turns out from a biological point of view they do not um ah, in fact, interesting. the researcher who did this really wasn't sure which way it would go he thought yeah well that would make sense like you know if there's you know a lot of good in the relationship but also a bunch of bad then you know maybe the good outweighs the bad but no if you're in an ambivalent relationship according to his work and it doesn't have to be all that negative to be ambivalent it's hard on your biology. And so I think that should be a bit of a wake-up call either to not engage with those people so much or maybe to do the harder work of trying to hand, you know, trying to make those relationships better or be a little bit more aware of what we bring to the negative side of of some of those friendships. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, so uh, I know that I've I've kept you for quite a while now, and I'm not quite. If you're okay with it, I'm not quite ready to close out the interview with my final two questions um, because there's one big pressing question that I feel like I have to ask. Okay, go. go ahead. And then, of course, if there's anything that you feel like we haven't really covered, which is like tons. Um, the the big thing that that comes to my mind is this conversation about developmental psychology, this idea of lifespan and how friendships change throughout the life, right? Like most people remember being young and having tons of friends. And then most people are like, why does my grandma have no friends? Or like, how come mom and dad have barely any friends? And wouldn't it be better if they had more as they continued on? I mean, why is it that kind of the quantity versus quality um, calculus or algorithm shifts throughout the lifespan? It has to do with time and motivation, I think. Um, so when you are young in school and in high school and college, especially, I mean, on some levels, you've got nothing but time to be with your friends. You are with your friends at a rate that or in fact, there was a study uh, where they they had everybody from adolescence all the way to senior citizens. And they texted them like every two hours and said, who are you with? And the adolescents, <laughs> the adolescents were with their friends 30% of the time. 
And the adults 40 to 65 were with their friends 4% of the time. And then the adults over 65 were with their friends 8% of the time. Um, oh, interesting. So there's, yeah. There's so a, it actually a does go back up. And yeah, I'm, okay. I'm going to go on the record as saying I'm a little less worried about the older adults than everybody else is because I think we've kind of gotten, which isn't to say that the loneliness isn't a severe problem for some older adults, but there are a couple of other things at work. And one is that um, some people later in life are just being choosier about who they hang out with. They've decided that yeah. their time is limited and they want to spend it with people they really care about. So they're actually doing that yeah. work that we were just describing of saying, I'm not going to deal with, you know, the people who don't make me happy anymore. Um, but the, on the other hand, there are, there are people, I think in adulthood, we, we do get, so when we're in the prime of life and we have families maybe or busy careers or both, you know, we, we just are always feeling pressed for time and friendship does require time. It requires an investment of, of time together. And then if you put that in early, you can, co you can coast on that then for a while, but but not entirely. Yeah. You still have to. But you're right. You have to, you have to check time. in. You have to check in. You have to show up some. You have to show that you care. You have to pay attention. And so it's work. I mean, it's just work. It's and from an evolutionary point of view, it's it. You expend energy to make a friend, but you do it because the benefits outweigh the costs, right? And um and so the problem is that. At busy points in our lives, we are, that's when we're the most likely to kind of not, to let our friends drop down to the bottom of the list, the priority list, right? And and what I want people to think about is, yes, I know you're really busy and you don't have the hours that you had in college, say, to hang out with with your friends. And, and that's that time's not going to come back, although it sort of does, actually, if you retire and then you work at it at the people who replace their workmates with playmates and like actively put themselves in situations where they meet new people at the end of life are doing the best. They're the happiest oh, and okay. healthiest. And so, so much. And that's why I mentioned motivation at the beginning, because I think that adults just expect it to be as easy as it was when we were young. <laughs> you know, even though our time is so much, even more though divided. our time is so much more um, hard to, yeah, divided and hard to come by and the demands on us. And then we're tired. Right. And so then we have, and we also, we don't want to be, it's, it's not easy and to make yourself vulnerable and like put yourself out there, especially as an adult, right. You sort of like to, yeah, to have those conversations of like, Oh, you weren't there for me. And it really let me down. And let me tell you all this shit so that we can like rebuild. And yeah, sometimes you're like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> or or even less dramatic than that. Like, I just want to watch Netflix tonight and sit on the couch and it's, oh, you know, I don't want to have to get dressed and go out. But almost always we're glad that we do make the effort to go yeah, out. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? So we always have, time. We have yeah. to push ourselves sometimes to... Um, to get up and out and, or if it's going to be the hard conversation that you were just talking about, you know, that's, that requires another kind of motivation, but I'm really more just talking about that sort of, let me work on figuring out how to, um, how to come by, how to, how to put myself in situations where I might be likely to connect with someone. And usually that requires sort of something like a shared interest or a shared passion, like a purpose, like, you know, volunteer work is a really great example where in fact, people often can connect because they're choosing 
it's a self-selecting group. Whatever it is that you're volunteering for is something that you care about, we hope, right? And that, that, that the other people, right, like would be interested in the same thing. And, uh, and shared interest all through the lifespan is at the core of friendship. I mean, it, it partly explains how kids, um, you know, yeah, okay, there can be a social status hierarchy in high school. But it's also true that like the football players tend to be friends with football players also because that's who they spend most of their time with, right? <laughs> and the kids in the yeah, kids, it's like a dual thing. You, you know? have similar interests. Right. And you know and what you talk about. You have the same emotional response things, but you're also physically in the same You are physically proximity. in the same space. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, you're experiencing the same things. You're sharing the emotions of winning or losing or being yelled at by the coach or frustration or joy or whatever it is, right? Um, and the same thing for the theater kids and the computer kids and and whatever it is. And that's the thing that's happening, like beginning really mostly in middle school, where we really start to get a much more sense of who we are and our identity and of what it is we think we're going to be interested in. And then we tend to start gravitating to the other kids who share that interest, partly because it gives us something to talk about and partly because that just is who we're with more often. So, so, and it's why you also see them self-select them, us when we were kids too, self-select around things like music or around things yeah. because it's like, oh, this is the backdrop to who we are. So you'll see the kids who listen to punk rock hanging out and the kids who listen to metal hanging out. And yeah. The, and it does. That makes sense. Yeah. But now one interesting point, just as a little aside though, is that kids uh, who have more than one identity, so a kid who is an athlete and a musician, and so has friends in both groups, is just has an easier time making diverse, more diverse friendships and just is more kind of, even if, so like kids who grow up in schools that are more racially and ethnically diverse and socioeconomically diverse, they have an easier time with, with, or they tend to have friends who are different from them in those ways. But in a more homogenous environment, it's interesting that, so let's say you're in, I don't know, rural South Dakota and everybody's white. And, um, yeah. but if you are a kid in that school who does different things, you are more likely to have diverse friends according to interest, right? So the same sort of principle of similarity and diversity applies. It's just different contexts. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting way to think about it. And that so that, you know, it explains that kids, I mean, the the TV show Glee was kind of this way, right? Remember that Finn was the connector. He was the football player, but then who ended up joining the Glee club. And then he brought people across the line from one to the other. Yeah, there were, I remember at my school, there were specific, I think I was one of them that we called them like diplomats. Yeah, or Yeah, you know. Yeah, I was a cheerleader, a singer, and a like honor, like a, you and know, a student, AP. A good student, student, right. Like a nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So it's, um, so I don't know. Anyway, I've gotten off the track of the lifespan, but, but the biggest thing that changes is time is like the ease of time to spend with friends and then and you do have to work at that and understand that it doesn't just sort of come and i know you know so sometimes you can spend lots and lots of time with people at work and not 
become friends and that's fine. So because time is only one, all those things I said you need, you can't just have one, <laughs> right? Like, Time alone is not enough to make you friends. And, you know, the, the doing each thing requires the others as well. So, um, well, and it seems like time also has to have some sort of like investment component, like a qualitative, yes, you know, it's not right. just being near somebody, but also right. being engaged with and them. It, and it makes me wonder too, if there's like this kind of algorithm or, um, you know, economic component to this, that if you invest earlier up front, there's kind of a payoff later. Because I do, like you mentioned, the friends that you are lifelong friends or the friends that you were able to really bond with in college and when you were in your 20s that you're still very close to in your 30s. But you have this understanding that like we get together once a month and we have lunch and it's like we it's like we see each other all the time, even though we don't really have as much time to invest now. Yeah. People talk about those as being the friends that you can be a part. You pick up like you, you know, you like you never left off, right? And and there are some of those. It's also true, though, that some of those relationships stay intense for a while, but then the more distance and time there is, the harder it can be. But like I'm finding, so I'm 53 now, so I'm getting up there. And my college friends, we've stayed in touch all this time, but but I'm finding that we are spending more time together now at this point in our lives. And I think it's because um, partly we have a little more time. Our kids tend to be, most of them are either in high school or in college out of the house. Not everybody, but almost. And, uh, and we are, and you know, people have more resources so they can travel because not everybody lives in the same place, but like, so once a year, maybe everybody gets together for the weekend. Um, and there was some, parts of that happening in the middle, but I would say in our 30s and 40s, less so uh, because everybody was more, you know, head down, either making their careers or raising their kids or, you know, it was just harder to get away on your own. So sometimes you circle back is my point. That's a long way of saying like, you know, some of those relationships and and the having been friends for a long time is is a really important factor in it. But I also actually feel closer to them again because we've now spent more time and we're talking more really? about that. Yeah, like really about the day-to-day, -day, what's going on in your lives like right now, you know? And a lot of us are dealing with losing our parents now. So you're sort of, you know, there's a lot. Um, so it's there are there are sort of waves to it uh but it's it's also true that the the people like one of my very closest friends in my day-to-day -day life here in Brooklyn is somebody that I met through work um, but now we've known each other for 20 years but or more but we did meet through work so it's entirely possible to make really good good close friends that stay friends um through work but there has to be like I said all those other pieces to it. So I just to address this question, though, of is there an algorithm and is, you know, is uh -huh. it better to have? Um, is it? So, like I said, long lasting relationships are a critical piece of friendship, but it could start. I mean, there is actually a little more change and fluidity in who you're close to than I think most of us realize. Some people do stick with that same group from either high school or college, and that's who they, you know, their social convoy, it's called, through your whole life. Like, that's it, and it never changes. Um, other people, there is more, you're swapping out, but like, it, you think of it as sort of a staggered staggered time frame. So like, you know, that person I met in my 20s at work, I've now known for 20 years. So that certainly counts as a long lasting friendship, right? And 
Um, and so she's maybe taken the spot of somebody that I was seeing a lot more of in my 20s who I had known for longer at that point, if that makes sense. That was it does. I think it really does. I mean, and, and you know, we are different people. We have these fundamental things that persist in our personalities, but we also change dramatically throughout the lifespan. And, and you know, you, you mentioned before, it just reminds me when we're talking about the full kind of span of developmental psychology. My area of research now is in um, death and dying psychotherapy and this idea of uh old, not always old age, but, but, you know, some of the things that we need to be understanding better about this final, what I consider a period of, of development, a period of growth, um, when people are aware that they're going to die and they have a terminal illness, for example. Um, and a lot of the research is pointing to this idea of gerotranscendence is something that Lars, uh, Tornstam wrote about extensively, uh, which is this theory that people who, um, are older, usually oldest of old, may um, spend a lot of time alone and that this is an active choice and that, you know, clinicians or practitioners need to kind of understand the difference between isolation, withdrawal, and some of these negative kind of anti-friendship behaviors and a more healthy, I'm just really interested in introspection, meditation, um, decoupling from a lot of the people who I've already lost because they've died yeah. also because of yeah. my age. Right. Um, and that this introspective part of my lifespan is, is preparing me a little bit for, um, for death. And so it is an interesting thing that, that in your research, you're finding that a lot of older people actually tend to have more friends than middle-aged people. I wonder if part of that too has to do with in our culture, where old people live. So you've got the ones who live alone and are often very isolated. And then you have individuals who live in retirement communities where they're surrounded by people. And of course, they have the opportunity to make these amazing friendships. Yeah. And I love, you know, because so many people dread the idea of retirement communities. And I, and I, and of course, the, the quality can vary dramatically. Uh, but if you're, um, I don't know. The the social connection of it, I think, is really interesting, in fact, and really important. And Or the idea that maybe you don't leave the neighborhood that you have been living in forever to go live across the country next to your daughter, you know, because you then are actually pulling yourself away from all the friends that you might have. Like, there's... I think that hasn't that kind of consideration hasn't come into it enough when we think about you're so right. older people and where they should live and how they you know how they and even if it's just one or two we might say oh but grandma you've only got that one person you talk to and here you're surrounded by fifty people it's like yeah but that one person is somebody I've known for sixty years right this is my like, person I love that. <laughs> this yeah, is exactly. my person like, right right but I will say I just want to sort of conclude by saying though that I do feel that you know friendship is a muscle you have to be using all your life and and somebody I mentioned Lisa Berkman earlier the social epidemiologist who did that early important work she now runs the public health school at Harvard so she's of course gone on to make something of herself <laughs> we could say and but she pointed out to me she said that we should think of relationships the almost like we do smoking and that if you smoke from 16 to 65 and then you quit at 65, it is still better to quit at 65 than not to quit at all. But damage will have been done. And, and, you know, 
the rest of your life, you're, you're going to pay for that. And the same thing is true as if we wait until retirement to think that now we have time to spend time with the people we care about and to, you know, worry about friends, then damage will have been done. We won't have built up that, those relationships and that bench of, of people to be there for us. Uh, and it is also true that in the middle of life, if you are married, that is usually the most salient relationship in terms of your health. But as you get older, not so much, uh, partly because people do tend to lose their spouses. And so, but friends can easily, um, <laughs> easily, they know, I don't, I don't mean it that way. They, I was going to say they can easily replace your, your, no, they can't easily replace <laughs> the person you were married to for 50 years, but, but they can, in terms of your psychological and physical health, having a strong group of friends at the end of life is, is really, really important and can have a very, very big impact. And so we really shouldn't ever discount that. Oh, I love it. So, so many brilliant insights. Lydia, I've, I've kept you now like well over an hour, so I don't <laughs> want to keep you longer, but I do always close my, my podcast by asking my guests the exact same two questions. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to, to give me another 30 seconds of your time sure. to, to, to let me know your insights on these questions. So, um, you know, when you think about the future, and this is, you know, obviously very relevant in the work that you do, the science journalism you do, but also potentially in your own kind of personal life. Um, when you think about the future, the first question is, what is the thing that really keeps you up at night? The thing that you're worried about, maybe even a little bit pessimistic about, you know, things aren't looking so good. Um, and then on the flip side of that, so we end on a bit more of a positive note, um, what are you genuinely kind of not lip service, but truly authentically um, optimistic for? What are you looking forward to? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> well, um, the first one, I mean, I, I, I am worried. I mean, what keeps me up at night is the state of the world. Quite literally, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But I, I really, here I am studying connection and, uh, and all of this. And I, you know, we're more polarized than ever in this country. And I think, um, and I worry about things like climate change. And you know, um, but so. That I can't go into it because we said thirty seconds, but that that, yeah. that does keep me up at night. Um, I interestingly, I I've been surprised. I mean, I was a little worried that maybe like my my book would get lost in the impeachment, which was happening right when it came out and things like that. But it, it hasn't been. In fact, it's gotten a huge amount of attention, which I think tells us that it's something of the antidote. Maybe it's the thing we think we can control, and there is some truth to that. So. That is probably what I feel optimistic about that I I am I mean, I don't mean this to be self-serving, but it's been so gratifying to see how this message has been received. And I wasn't sure it would be at all. I thought most people would say, um, well, why friendship? What do I care? You know, I already know about that. You have nothing to tell me, you know. And uh and so the fact that people are as interested in as they are in what I'm talking about gives me hope that we will um that, you know, good things can come of it. And that, and that just that there is that still that, that desire. And, and I'll just say lastly that, you know, I hope people don't, um, 
I have taken this work not as a to-do list. So I, I hope people don't feel like I'm just adding to their burden, but rather that I'm, I've given myself permission now to hang out with my friends <laughs> to, and to feel I that it that. is a really important way to spend my time and it's valuable. And if I have to leave a little work undone until tomorrow or let my kid order in, you know, a burger. And while I go out with a friend, sometimes that is absolutely okay. And in fact, I'm modeling, you know, the importance of friendship for my kids when I do that. So give yourself permission, go out with your friends, you will be happier and healthier. Here, here. Well, Lydia, gosh, what a great chat we had today. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Absolutely. And everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Mm-hmm.